welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Hey everyone, this is Shimon at Doing the Work. Our first podcast guest, Jonathan Foyles, has a book called This City is Killing Me, Community Trauma and Toxic Stress in Urban America on Belt Publishing. Check out the link in the show notes and use the code DTW, as in doing the work, to get 10% off the cost of the book. Belt is also going to kick some money back to the podcast. So this is an excellent way to get a great deal on an awesome book and contribute to the podcast. In this episode, I talk with Margot Walsh, who is the founder and CEO of MainWorks and the chair and co-founder of the Maine Recovery Fund, both in Portland, Maine. We discuss how MainWorks was created to provide jobs to convicted felons transitioning back to society from jail or prison due to the barriers they face finding employment. Margot discusses how Maine has been hit hard by drug addiction, particularly opioids, and how many of her employees have significant barriers to successful re-entry to society beyond simply having a job. Margot explains the problems with the term ex-felon and how a felony conviction negatively impacts the person for life. We talk about mental health and recovery, and Margot shares her story of how she got into this work. I open up about a friend of mine who was a felon and died by suicide. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Margo, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and spending time to talk about the excellent work that you're doing up in Maine. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a delight to talk to you. Thanks, Jamon. So just to get started, if you could share with the listeners about, you know, Maine Works and the, and the work, what that program looks like and kind of take people into the daily activities of what that program looks like. Of course. And again, thank you for having me. In 2011, out of my own recovery, I was volunteering at the Cumberland County Jail pre-release program. And the concept is that pre-release inmates have a chance to work in the community for about six months and kind of get their uh, wits about them in order to be more employable upon um, re-entry, ultimately. And, you know, the the thing that always was interesting to me working at the pre-release was that there was such a stigma about hiring felons that it was almost impossible, despite the the efforts that they would put in as pre-release inmates, that when they would get out, ultimately, they would still be faced with the question, um, are you a felon? And inside the jail and prison system, when you're talking about pre-release programming, there's always a big discussion about how do you deal with the felon question? And it used to always get underneath my skin that there would have to be this, uh, this um, story that one would put together to defend their felon status. So it really bothered me. So I thought, why don't I just hire them all? And I'll only hire felons. I'll just turn the whole conversation right around and say, in order to work at my company, you need to be a convicted felon. And that would erase the stigma as far as my company was concerned. So I was really happy to do that. I actually happened to have kind of a history of being a little bit disruptive in my own life. And my own life was disruptive. You know, all through my 20s and early 30s, I drank copiously and finally needed to get sober in 1997. So I'm really excited to have started the first felon employment company um, in in the country in uh, 2011. 
that's an incredible story on multiple levels, you know, your own process and then taking your experience and creating something that can benefit others, especially such a marginalized group. Yeah. Employment for people who are so marginalized always looks like day labor. And so every major city has their whole host of day labor race to the bottom in pricing. How much can we possibly get away with paying these guys? How little can we get away with it? We'll pay them on a day-to-day basis. So we have no responsibility for them. We don't, you know, this it's, um, quite exploitative, in my opinion, of um, taking people who are really disadvantaged to begin with, especially stigmatized with felonies, or um, as it turns out now, especially in the state of Maine, uh, the ubiquity of the drug crisis has further stigmatized this population, driving them further into kind of the shadows of employment uh, through these temp labor staffing companies. There are plenty of those organizations that do great work, but um, it's also the place where people can be you know, summarily uh, exploited as uh, workers. They have no rights, really, because they're not employed. So I wanted to turn the story around to say, I'll, I'll hire them fully. So MainWorks employees are fully employed by MainWorks. And then we use a staffing lab- labor model where we um, actually, on a day-to-day basis, put them out to work at different companies. And in many cases, they work with um, a company for, you know, several weeks at a time. And the great outcome after a few months is that my employees, MainWorks employees, actually convert to the payroll and permanent employment with one of my clients. It happens all the time. And so not only do they get a great outcome with a private employer, usually in the construction companies in Maine are the ones who have taken to this because their labor needs are endless. So my, my employees are then get converted to full-time employment. And in Maine, there's a big thing about um, construction companies are often employee-owned. So my, my employees who would have been completely and systematically discriminated against end up in employee stop, stock ownership companies um, with full benefits, time off, and all of those things that as a felon would have been completely elusive to them. So it's a great outcome. Yeah, and I, I want to, you know, talk about the dual aspect of this with recovery and how important support and employment is to recovery and how hard that can be, but then also that layer of having felon status yeah. and the difficulties with employment and the challenge of people becoming re-entry and getting connected to their community and how you address those. That's a great question. And it's the essence of our business. We started as a company that only hired people um, coming out of jail and prison. And so that was following a different um, set of priorities. But in Maine, the drug epidemic in the form of opioids and then heroin and fentanyl has blown up concurrent with the life of MainWorks. And so not only were people being arrested and incarcerated for uh, driving and other related crimes, now they were being arrested for um, crimes derivative of the opioid epidemic, which were just more urgent. And, you know, then you have a lot of other factors going into that. But so at the same time, MainWorks employs people in uh, reentry from jail and prison it became recovery focused necessarily because a lot of the people had also done stuff related to the drug crisis, especially things like burglary and robbery and that kind of thing. So when you take that and you say, okay, now they're going to get out of jail and prison, but 
essentially they have not done anything for their recovery in the, in this paradigm, especially um, in the past few years, there was nothing being offered in terms of recovery while incarcerated. We would end up with a lot of young people who had an urgent crisis when they got out where they had been high and under that kind of influence when they were arrested. And now eight months later, they're getting out and they're still um, at great risk of drug use and have done nothing to work on their recovery while incarcerated. Uh, they've usually been estranged from their family and all the other things that go with late level uh, drug addiction. Uh, and then they have no money naturally. So it became very expensive to run Mainworks as a private company. So my sister and I decided to start a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit called Maine Recovery Fund. And Maine Recovery Fund exists to uh, help everybody who is interested in work. We can provide a free ride to work for people, bus passes, steel-toed work boots, you know, all the, es the essential things for getting out to work. Um, and then we realized that people didn't even have underwear, outerwear, jeans. You know, people show up at Mainworks wearing their prison discharge outfit, which is, you know, incredibly demoralizing, you know, to say the least, among other things. So it just um, reiterates the urgency of finding a funding mechanism that has immediate impact for the day you get out of jail and prison, not three weeks later, because in those three weeks, they're really likely to run into other serious trouble or overdose. So we want to get them bed to bed into sober living. And then if they're ready and willing, get them working and we'll provide all of those things. So we've been dealing with um, hyper-incarceration and the drug epidemic all in one setting, which is MainWorks, supported by and kind of swimming next to Maine Recovery Fund. So do you start, when you mentioned when you mentioned the sober living, getting them into sober living bed to bed, does that mean that you start working with folks while they're still incarcerated? Yes. And we have been working on um, developing a, a memorandum of understanding or a more formal relationship, frankly, with the Department of Corrections in Maine. Um, we had somewhat of, a, of an obstructionist governor up until this past governor um, election, which is now we have Governor Janet Mills in the state of Maine, and the commissioner of Com corrections is um, Randy Liberty, who I've known over the years as the warden in the Maine State Prison, who I know is really pro-program and pro-reform. Uh, so now I have a far more um, symbiotic relationship with both the, the state of Maine and the Department of Corrections. Now that we have a governor who is committed to and actually has committed staff and resources to prison reform and the opioid epidemic. And at the federal level, we are also engaged in discussions with senators from several states um, because they look at this model as an answer to those two concurrent social crises, which are hyperincarceration of people with drug offenses and the opioid epidemic. So they work, it works beautifully, and we are working to um, consider what the best way forward is for replicating this model from state to state. One thing that really sticks out to me as you're, as you're talking is that the work you're doing is on so many levels, right? Direct work with individuals, the relationship with the jails and the prisons, the relationship with government the on the state and federal level. And I also want to talk about the relationship with these businesses where your employees get placed because you've taken on, you, like, it's one thing for you to say, okay, I'm going to hire felons 
right? I'm going to hire people who have felony records and have a business and you hire those people. And that's one thing for you to decide to do that. But now you're placing them in these other companies. So somehow those business owners or managers or whomever have to be willing to take them as well. So how did you get that to happen? So I have a recruiting background. When I was right out of college, which I majored in psychology, I worked in recruiting for investment banking uh, in New York. Um, I was at Goldman Sachs in the 80s and 90s. And then after that, I worked for an international HR consulting firm called Hewitt. And my um, interest has always been finding ways for those types of companies to access non-traditional employment markets, uh, because they're not naturally drawn to those organizations. And so I've been working for the underdog since I graduated from college, basically. And But I've had to hire with great discretion, because you can't just hire anybody to fill a number or a quota. You need to hire someone that's actually going to um, supplement that workforce or you know add value to that workforce. And so Mainworks hires with great discretion. I can't drag net the entire prison population and hope that I might get one or two people that can actually, you know, hold themselves together for a full workday. We have to go through a lot of vetting. And that's why actually at Mainworks, people get, we get to try these guys out for their ability to show up for work every day and overcome the myriad obstacles of reentry. And, you know, couple all of that, the backdrop is always mental health issues. So it takes us a few months to sort that out. And then I would say the guys who show the greatest promise are the ones who can actually do all of those things. Those are the ones who end up getting hired uh, to full time. And many guys stay with Mainworks for years, which is really cool for us, actually. But in their best interest, we'll hopefully work towards the goal of full time employment with one of our private clients. Our private clients respect that we deal with people who are marginalized. And they are really excited to be able to open up their hiring practices with a partnership with us as the um, the vetting process for those people. They trust you. They trust me. It's taken a lot of years to gain that kind of trust and recognition, but it's um, unbelievable. I, I happen to have been invited to the State of the Union address with Senator Angus King, um, who's an independent from um, Maine and who's an esteemed former governor of Maine. He, People love him. And when I was at the State of the Union address with Angus King and being introduced, it occurred to me how years and years and years of relationship building have led to that moment where I can be introduced as someone that is credible and not trying to hustle these guys or um, you know make more money. Um, and by the way, as a footnote, Mainworks is a certified B Corp, which is a for-profit company with a measurable social impact. So really proud of that. But it came from years and years and years of relationship building. And I'm really proud of that. I think that's probably my legacy. It's really powerful. And it's a population that, you know, clearly has so many barriers and needs so much support. And the employment piece is huge. It's just so huge. And it's often something that really isn't discussed enough and just gets overlooked. When you have those barriers in life, there is an urgency around things as basic as dental care, vision care. There's no issuing of brand new glasses in the prison system. It's basically just, you know, hang on with the bare minimum until you get out. And then when everybody gets out of jail and prison, they can't afford to do those basic life-sustaining things. So Mainworks is frankly there to help people 
and give them flexibility of their work schedule in order to enroll in a mental health clinic and get their teeth sorted out and start looking at um, ways forward for themselves, like going in and looking at uh, the community college system, navigating all of that. So we actually become like a life skills navigator uh, by default for all of those things that one needs to do to put their life together, whether they're coming out of jail and prison or rehab. You know, I think for listeners, so I'm originally from Maine. I don't know if I said that. And I think, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with Maine, I mean, Maine is a very unique place. It's the culture, you know, the various cultures there, but a lot of, and I actually worked construction in Maine. Um, so I've showed up to a job site, had to shovel snow before we could even get to framing. Can't say I missed doing that, uh, but, you know, I needed to do it at the time. So I know kind of like the construction, you know, what that, what the people working on a construction site, how they are, how things are talked about. And, you know, I, I can't see a lot of those guys, for example, I used to work with asking anyone for help about anything. And you've got a whole crew, a whole organization geared towards helping this population. Can you kind of talk about that, how you break through some of that kind of like those prideful barriers maybe? Well, every single morning, including this morning, at six o'clock in the morning, we gather around a fire pit in the parking lot of Mainworks, and it's not glamorous. It's a very shaggy little spot with, you know, 15 to 40 young men and women gathered around a fire pit. And I lead with the question every single day, who here has expletive their life through the use of drugs and alcohol? And 100% of the people in the circle raise their hand. The next question is, how many people have ever spent a night in jail or prison? And 90% of them raise their hand. So it's the great unifier. And I think that that's the power of recovery, which is basically, you know, you arrive at these places broken. There's really no further way down than that. Um, We call it a rock bottom moment. So here you are, you know, rock bottom. Collectively, we all now agree, yes, we're all in the same moment. So um, you're either going to move forward or move laterally, which is pretty much out and back to your old behavior. I think that it boils down to, you know, give up your act, give it, give up the substance, clean up your act. And in doing that, you can start to give back. And that's where your sort of healing begins in your life. And I really believe that desperate people are willing to do anything. And so, you know, it depends on how far along the scale you are. But when they end up at Mainworks, that's pretty much the, um, the last chance. But the paradox is it's the opportunity of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Where it might be the last chance and people say, oh, it's, um, you know, temp labor. The fact is that if you're willing, and again, this is the same thing that in my 12-step program, I've always been taught, if you're willing to show up and do the work, unbelievable things happen. And that's kind of a spiritual story. But, you know, it's also easier to accept help from people who have been in the exact same place that you are in. And pride is a big problem. Um, in our in our world today, and these guys are willing to sideline the pride long enough to ask for the essential help that they need. So we have a magic formula, I think, of community, and in a sense of community and a sense of engagement and belonging, you can be more honest about what exactly your needs are. And we ask every morning, you know, what's your goal for the day? And we have a goal board. I mean, it's really basic. It's I don't know if anybody listening to this has ever been to rehab, and I have. 
but you wake up in the morning and rehab and it's really not all that glamorous. So the best thing you can do is uh, just do the next thing. And it's very fundamental. And before you know it, you're off and running. It's clear that your recovery experience, you know, have obviously heavily influences this work, not only in you choosing to do this, but the fact that you can be so effective at it and connect with the employees. Thank you so much, Simon. One thing I will say is in this community, we don't allow division. So I will always talk about that because there's no one who's better off than the next guy. And we've all walked through the exact same door to get here, right? So um, we are really careful to inspire community and non-division. And to me, that's what gives us credibility, that there's no um, sidebar conversation, there's no eye rolling, there's no uh, you know um, impatience with each other. And I guess that's for this whole society that we're in now, you know, everyone is looking for someone to lead the way from a place of civility and uh, collaboration rather than, you know, it's, it's way too easy to, to become divided. And I think that any recovery program talks about, you know, we're all in here together, shoulder to shoulder in our misery and suffering, which is a human experience. And so if we can all be more forthcoming and lead with our frailty less than our resume, I think we would actually have a far more um, collaborative society. And it's really urgent. And I hope in the end that MainWorks has affected that. Something that you and I talked about when we spoke on the phone, you know, prior to setting up this interview was the term ex-felon. And I really liked what you had to say about that. So I'm bringing it up because I want to get it on here. I want to hear what you have to say about the term ex-felon on here on the podcast. Thank you for asking, because it's so detrimental that there is this phrase in our society, he's an ex-felon. I even hear it in the prison system. If you are a felon, you are a felon for life, unless you have your record expunged, which is extremely rare and costs a lot of money. So when people are committed of a felony, that is their status for life. And it affects so many things. Clearly, it affects employment. It affects housing. It affects access to social services. It affects education. It is so longstanding. And I think the problem is that we have been very quick to um, categorize all of these crimes as felonies, which endures for life. The other thing I want to say about that before I close is that when in our system of jurisprudence, and you receive, you know, if you receive a um, sentence for something, that sentence is calculated based on the gravity of the crime and what the, you know, what the sort of um, parameters are for someone who's done that type of thing needs to be given this sentence. It was not intended to be a life sentence. And we have unfortunately created a life sentence in every felony that we offer. So, you know, so much for doing your time, you are marked for life. So I'm trying to change that conversation too. I think it's really important that people recognize it because even the term ex-felon is a labeling and stigmatizing term. So, and it's not even accurate, right? It's what you're saying. So it's not accurate. So what's the point of even using it? Because number one, it still stigmatizes the person. And then number two, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not accurate. And, you know, I don't always on the podcast get into like personal stories, but you talking about this, just, I can't help but think of like this really 
dear friend of mine who did prison time, got out, um, had the hardest time. This was out in Oregon when I lived in Oregon. He had the hardest time getting a job. He would, you know, he's like, I have five felonies. Like, I don't know what to put on a job application. And he would work with um, various, you know, kind of transition programs. This is a number of years ago. But his story did not end well. His story ended in suicide, actually, because he just could never get over some of the issues from his past and just could never move on with his life. And so what you're doing, I mean, this is this is not just about like employment. This is about life and death. I mean, when it gets into drug addiction, criminal records, felony, all of this stuff, This, if these people don't have main works and these types of options, like what else is there, you know? I'm really sorry about that situation and the loss of your friend. The other part of this clearly, Shimon, is present in every single arrest for drug use, for whatever the reason for the arrest. If you pull the curtain back, there is this incredible volume of statistics to support that mental illness is um, woven throughout the history of that individual. And now I've started asking, because at MainWorks, we can kind of ask anything, what happened to you? What happened to you along the way? What happened to you in school? Were you in an IEP program? Mm -hmm. Were you the problem kid in the class? All of these things indicate and are correlated with addiction in later life. Because you know what? Who wouldn't rather feel better? And unfortunately, you know, heroin is the panacea. If you are, if you have money to keep a habit going, who wouldn't want to feel the best feeling available on the planet? Why do you think the opium wars have been going on since beginning of time? You know, there's clearly an appeal to this, but the the problem is why are so many people chasing an altered reality? That is our societal challenge. And I am now starting to focus almost all of our energies when we have new hires on uh, the mental health component, because it's rearranging the deck chairs and the Titanic to not address mental health. So let's talk about that. Cause you know, just thinking about my friend and Tom would never go talk to anyone Mm -hmm. about his problems. Mm -hmm. So how do you, and a lot of people are like that, right? How do you um, make that transition? How do you make that connection to get, to help get these folks into counseling? The um, availability of mental health care, urgent triage mental health care is really hopeless. So we need to do a lot more with that. So I will pull strings to get them seen that day. And that's a, a matter of me making phone calls to people that have said to me over the years, if you ever need anything, give me a call. I cannot say enough that um, getting people in front of a, a person just to say, here are my issues, what do you think? So what we're going to do is we're going to find, we're going to get a staff member right on board at Maine Recovery Fund that is a mental health care interventionist who can say, quite literally, what you're dealing with is usually so within the normal realm. And let's see how soon we can help navigate to get you in front of a mental health care provider like this week, not in six weeks. It's just not acceptable. Yeah. Access is a huge issue. And then what does the conversation with the individual look like just from your perspective saying, I mean, is is this person already like 
hey, I know I need help? Or are they kind of, you're helping them to move them along to actually address this? It's all over the place because I have had, I have a level of trust with a lot of these guys because they've, in many cases, they've been at main works years, you, you know, they, they relapse, they come back, they relapse, they come back. You know, I have one guy who's been to detox probably 16 or 20 times since he's been working at Mainworks. He's always welcome back. Every Unless you've done anything violent or jeopardized Mainworks in any way, you're welcome back. And the circle opens up for you every single morning. So I will sit down with that person. The chronic, you know, uh, repeater is someone that I feel like I have a modicum of trust with. And I'll just say, listen, you know, I, it doesn't serve you to continue to kick the can here. So how can we help you with mental health care that you need? I mean, it's a very direct conversation. Yep. I, life's too short to be um, subtle. And um, if they can't handle it, they can report me. So I really don't care. I, it's too urgent. And it's um, life and death, as you said, Shimon. It's really urgent. Margo, you know, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and for doing the work in the community. Thank you. I'm honored. It is a labor of love. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't have capacity for it. And I'm being fueled by it. So people ask, are you drained? Isn't it exhausting? And I say, the answer is absolutely not. And um, you just get up every day and keep going. And when you show up in a circle every morning at six o'clock, and there's a bunch of people standing around who are eager and engaged and desperately trying to change their lives, that's worth waking up for. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.